following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. Great to see you or glad to have you if you joined us online. If you have a Bible, grab it and let's go to Matthew chapter 20. We'll be in Matthew chapter 20 this morning. Uh, On Monday this past week, a whole bunch of us gathered here down at the other end of the building in the, the New Commons to celebrate the life of a beloved IBCer, Susie Mercer. Susie and her husband Mark have been a part of IBC for more than 30 years. And uh, not long after coming here, they actually found themselves moving with their young family to Nairobi, Kenya. Mark was a seminary professor over there training uh, folks there in Nairobi to, to minister throughout that region. And, and Susie had an active ministry of um, mentoring seminary wives, of, of inviting um, folks into her home and showing hospitality and leading in Bible study fellowship. And, and I was really moved being a part of that service, just sitting in the service and listening to one story after another, after another of the impact that Susie had had on people's lives and just the way in which she gave so deeply of herself, that so she cared for people, that, that she prayed for people, that she welcomed people and that she served people. Story after story after story. And, and, and I was really um, uh, marked by the idea that we talk a lot here at IBC about the notion of being a missionary disciple. And that I think that Susie Mercer was the epitome of a missionary disciple. Of course, Susie's calling as a missionary called her halfway around the world. 26 years she and Mark spent in the mission field. And yet, the thing that really um, I took notice of is that Susie was a missionary wherever her feet carried her. That she was every bit as much a missionary here in their home and in Irving as as she was on the other side of the world. That she was the epitome of a missionary disciple because her whole life was characterized by giving herself away for the glory of God and the good of other people. And this is what it means to be A missionary disciple. My hope and prayer is that God would call more and more people from the body of IBC to travel around the world, to to be engaged in global mission, to to serve the needs of the nations, to bring the gospel to the world. And I believe that God, just as he has in the past, will continue to raise up people here at IBC to go cross borders to bring the gospel message to the world around us. And yet the reality is every single one of us is called to live as a missionary disciple wherever our feet take us. And that looks like giving ourselves away for the glory of God and the good of other people. We are concluding this morning our sermon series called More of You. It's a series that's been all about spiritual formation, about our becoming more and more like Jesus. And and it really captures the, the cry of our heart that says, Jesus, I want more of you. I want more of you in my life. I want more of your heart. I want more of your character formed in me. But it's also the recognition that you only get more of him as he gets more of you. As you yield more and more of your life over to him and allow him to have his way in your life. And that when we do, we find ourselves being changed. We find ourselves experiencing deep, real, and lasting transformation so that we not only become more like Jesus, but actually become more and more our true selves. We become more and more the person that God has made us to be. 
We've been walking through this series talking about the various practices that God used to form this character in us. We began talking about scripture and the idea that we want to have the same kind of relationship to the Bible that, that Jesus had with the Bible, to allow the Bible to shape our lives. And then we talked about um, the idea of being together in community, that we find freedom in our struggles only as we walk with the community of fellow strugglers. We talked about silence and solitude, carving out space in our lives to commune with God in prayer. And we talked about worship, giving our attention, affection, and allegiance to God, both gathered with the church and scattered in the world. And this morning, we're gonna talk about the final practice, and that is the practice of service, the practice of giving ourselves away for the glory of God and the good of other people. And I wanna look with you at this story, this, this scene from the life of Jesus. We've been talking throughout this series about the idea of the yoke of Jesus. The yoke of Jesus that's not just Jesus' unique teaching on the Bible, but actually Jesus' way of life, that we are to pattern our lives after his life. And I think we see in this scene a really important insight into the nature of the yoke of Jesus. So if you're taking notes or you're just like um, clear structure, what you're gonna see as we work our way through this scene is first a mother's request in verse 20 and 21. And then Jesus' response, verse 22 and 23. Then we have the disciples' reaction, verse 24. And then Jesus' revelation, verse 25. So request, response, reaction, and revelation. Let's look first at this mother's request. Look with me in verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her son and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What does he want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Now, when we see this request from uh, this mother, what we see is right off the bat that she's, she's wanting her boys to have the power seats when Jesus enters his kingdom. And it's really important that you not read too quickly past the very first word in the scene. Do you see what it is? That the very first word in this little scene is the word then. Mark, our story, or Matthew, our storyteller, is actually drawing our attention to the fact that this happened right after what he's just told us just before. And so if you scan back up the page, what you find is that Jesus has just finished telling his disciples that they're on their way to Jerusalem. And he tells them very clearly, very explicitly what's going to happen when they get there. He tells them very clearly, very explicitly, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be betrayed, mocked, flogged, and crucified. Jesus has made clear the road of suffering that lies ahead of them. And then immediately on the heels of this, this woman comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, when you enter your kingdom, can my boys get the power seat? It's like, wait a second. Were you even paying attention? Were you even listening to anything that I just said? Now, it's easy for us to go immediately into what she does wrong, right? That, that, that it's pretty clear that, that she's coming uh, uh, in the wrong way with the wrong motives. And yet, I think it's important just to point out the things that she does get right when she comes to Jesus. First of all, I think it's worth pointing out, she loves her boys, right? She comes to Jesus with this request because she loves her kids. She wants what's best for her boys. And that's something noble, that's something honorable, that, that all of us as parents, we want what's best for our kids. We wanna see them thrive, we wanna see them flourish. 
Um, this weekend uh, was an opportunity for my family to get together, have a bit of a family reunion with extended families, aunts, uncles, cousins, that dynamic that Tiffany prayed about earlier today, we got to have yesterday as a family. And it was really great, but, but one of my kids wasn't actually able to be there. He was supposed to be there with us, but he on Wednesday, Pearson, our middle child, Wednesday, went with a thousand, several thousand other teenage actors uh, to descend upon the Gaylord Texan for the Texas Thespian Society. A group of student actors, several thousand of them, that just took over the Gaylord Hotel in Grapevine. And uh, they do workshops, and they have college auditions, and it also includes some competition. And so we got a text from Pearson late Friday night indicating that he got a call back on the performance that he did with three of his buddies. They, they entered into this competition with their little small ensemble. And they got a call back to do it again. And then we found out, we got a text Saturday morning that they won the whole thing. And that they got the chance to, yes, it's so cool. Um, They got the chance to then perform in front of several thousand of their peers. It was just an amazing, amazing experience for them. And uh, so I decided I'd brag about it in my sermon this morning, right? (laughs) Because as a parent, I love my kids. I want to see them thrive. I want to see them flourish. I want what's best for them. This was an amazing experience. We look at this woman and she loves her kids. She wants what's best for them. She wants them to have this amazing experience of sitting at Jesus' right and Jesus' left. The other thing that I think it's important that we notice that she gets right is she believes Jesus. She believes that, that Jesus is entering into. He's going to have a kingdom. She's been paying attention to all this kingdom talk that Jesus has been doing. She, she, um, she noticed what Jesus said just in the previous chapter in Matthew's gospel about the idea that the 12 disciples are going to sit on 12 thrones and judge the nations. And she's just saying, hey, I want to make sure that my boys get the thrones closest into Jesus. She does believe Jesus and that he's entering into a kingdom But she's clearly missed the point of the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to bring, right? Because because while she's been paying attention, she's been walking with Jesus for a long time. We actually, um, scholars kind of connect the dots here in the New Testament to figure out who this woman is in other places in the account. She is the wife of Zebedee, the, the mother of James and John. Scholars think that she's the person who's referred to elsewhere as Salome, who is included among the women who's at the cross of Jesus. And some scholars have suggested that she's actually Mary's sister and therefore would be considered the aunt of Jesus and James and John, Jesus' cousins. Um, We have this interesting woman who's been following Jesus, it seems, for a long time, and yet she's missed the point. And I think that's a really important caution for us, isn't it? That, that some of us are capable of following Jesus for a long time and still quite prone to miss the point. Now, I, I think that we're actually supposed to see something a little bit humorous in this story. It's the, it's the mother. It's, it's mommy that comes to make this request on behalf of her boys. And they're kind of cowered down behind her. Some have suggested that this is part of the argument for seeing that the disciples were likely teenagers as they're following Jesus on his mission. And here they come along behind their mom who makes this request of Jesus. What is it that she wants? She knows Jesus is gonna be the king. She wants her boys to have proximity to the king. And proximity to the king equals power, 
privilege and prestige. Right? To be, to be close to the king means some of the king's power rubs off on you. Some of the king's privilege rubs off on you. Some of the king's prestige rubs off on you. And if you think about it, I think we have to be honest that, that our lives can be caught up in the pursuits of power and privilege and prestige. Right? That, that we can find ourselves really um, enjoying power, having a little weight to throw around. That we can find ourselves really caught up in, in the pursuit of privilege, of, um, of just the perks that come with power, or being able to avoid some of the, the challenges and difficulties that other people have to face. And we, we love prestige. We love to be thought well of, even, even envied for the life that we have. And that we can find ourselves caught up in living in the pursuit of power and privilege and prestige. It's a very human pursuit. But Jesus makes clear, this is not my way. This mother wanted her boys to be big. And we have to be honest, we, we like to be big too. Yet I love what D.L. Moody once said when he said, we may easily be too big for God to use, but never too small. Isn't that good? We, we may easily be too big for God to use, but never too small. The Apostle Paul captures beautifully the way of Jesus in the book of Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, when he says this. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. We can so easily get caught up in selfish ambition in the pursuit of power, privilege, and prestige. So we see that embedded in the mother's request. Let's look then at Jesus' reply. Jesus' response, verse 22. He says, you don't know what you're asking for. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. Jesus just acknowledges to them right off the bat, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't know what you're getting yourself into. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Now, this metaphor of a cup is used through the Old Testament to oftentimes to talk about the reality of suffering that God's people have to faithfully endure. Jesus, of course, uses the metaphor of the cup to talk about what he's going to do on the cross. That the night before Jesus goes to the cross in the garden, he goes and he throws himself down on the ground and he prays to his father. He says, Father, if there is any way, if there's any way, what? Let this cup pass from me. We're told three times he goes away and he pleads to the father, if there's any way, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. And then the metaphor shows up again in that uh, scene a little later where Jesus slices off the guy's ear. Remember that? That the soldiers come to arrest Jesus and and we're told that one who is standing there pulls out a sword. He's ready to defend Jesus. He's going to go to battle if I have to. He pulls out the sword, cuts off the guy's ear, and Jesus stops him. Now, if you read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell that story, and it just says that it was someone who was standing there. It's only John 
who outs Peter, right? Who says it was Peter who did it. Of course, if we've been paying attention, it just sounds exactly like something Peter would do, right? But I have to think that Peter and John have had a conversation about this, right? About why'd you, why'd you out me? Um, Peter takes out the sword, cuts the guy's ear off, and then Jesus heals him, puts the ear back on, and he says to Peter, Peter, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me to drink? Three times he pleads, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And now he's settled, he's resolved, he's prepared to endure whatever it is that he has to endure as he moves toward the cross. Peter, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me to drink. And so he says to James and John, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And their response, we can, right? They, they, they're like, bring it on, we got this. And uh, they had no idea what they were saying. In the previous scene, they wanted to be bigger than they actually were. And in this one now, they, they think themselves stronger than they actually are. And boy, I think we need stories like this, don't we? Stories that just remind us of the reality. We are not as strong as we think we are. That we need to be reminded of that. That we are not as strong as we think we are. That we need to be reminded of what Paul says about the reality that, it, that is when we are weak, then his strength is made perfect in us. When I am weak, then I'm strong. When I acknowledge the reality of my weakness before God, that's where his strength meets me. We're not as strong as we think we are. And then Jesus says to them, you, you, you will drink from my cup. You will have a share in my suffering. And we know as the story progresses that James is in fact the the very first one who loses his life because of his allegiance to Jesus. James is the first martyr of the Jesus movement. And we know that John lives a long life. James is the, the first one to die. It seems that John is the last of the 12 to die. But he lives a long life filled with hardship and pain and suffering, including a prolonged, lonely exile on the Isle of Patmos. Jesus says, guys, you are going to drink from my cup. But then he says, but, but the seating arrangement isn't up to me. He says, the seating arrangement is, is designed by my father. It's not for me to give out. And, and boy, once again, I think there's something really important for us in this reminder Right, That our job is not to exalt ourselves, but to exalt Christ and let God worry about the seating assignments. Let God worry about our position. Let God worry about our influence. That, that our job is just to show up and serve whoever is right there in front of us. Let God worry about the seating assignments. Let him worry about our position, our influence. This is Jesus' response. Now, let's watch the way disciples react. Verse 24. Verse 24. When the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Now, we're not told exactly why they're indignant, right? It may be that, that they're hearing this and they're going, how dare they, right? What, what, what shameless self-promotion. I, I would never do something like that. It, it could be. But you think that's why they're indignant? No, I think the reason they're indignant 
is that they ask first, right? It's like now they've got dibs on the power seats. And, and all of these guys are scrambling for, jockeying for position. All of them want the power seats. And they're indignant because those guys ask first, why didn't I think of that? So it's interesting. Once again, very, very human response. Rivalry. Jealousy. Competition. Jockeying for position. Very, very human response. And yet Jesus makes clear this is this is not my way. The, 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 the cause of Christ, the, the kingdom of God, doesn't go forward through rivalry and, and competition and selfish ambition, jockeying for position. The cause of Christ, the kingdom of God, moves forward through humble service. And that's what Jesus says then in his revelation. And the reason I called this last little movement the, the revelation, Jesus' revelation, is that, that we would never have come up with this, right? That what we've seen so far is the typical human response. And now Jesus says something that's not typical at all. And yet here Jesus is revealing a better way to be human. Verse 25, Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become a great, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, you guys know the way the godless exercise power and, and, and leadership and, and influence. That, that, that they lord it over people. That Jesus says, you know that the godless are the ones who pursue the way of power and privilege and prestige. But that is not my way. Not so with you. And the, the, the original sentence structure of that sentence that puts that negative right at the beginning in, in what's referred to as the emphatic position. I mean, this is like the exclamation point. Not so with you. It's to be different with you. Not the way of power, privilege, and prestige, but the way of self-giving, the way of sacrificial service. Jesus says, whoever wants to be great must be a servant. Whoever wants to be the first must be the slave. He uses um, a, a high word and then a low word and then a higher word and then a lower word. That, that great servant, first slave called to be a slave to all. And I think we should just acknowledge that for us 21st century readers, that we, we squirm a bit when we read a reference to slavery in the Bible. As well we should. We squirm because of the horror of race-based chattel slavery in our American history. And that means that every time we see this word, it makes us feel Profoundly uncomfortable, as well it should. And there are some important differences between slavery in the ancient world and race-based slavery in U.S. history. But I think it's also worth pointing out that it would make them squirm too. 
That this call of Jesus is a call to something that is profoundly countercultural, profoundly disruptive, even disturbing. That Jesus calls us to adopt the posture towards others as a slave to all. When I was in college, I had to read several of Plato's dialogues. Plato, the great Greek philosopher, and, and, and Plato's writing had shaped the, the ancient world. He, he wrote before Jesus' time, but shaped that ancient Mediterranean world. And in one of those dialogues called the Gorgias, one of the characters in that story basically says that nobody can really be happy if he's a slave to anyone. And Jesus turns that on its head and says the only way to really be happy is to be a slave to everyone. And then he ends with this beautiful line, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the yoke of Jesus that he didn't come to, to be served, but to serve. And I think it's worth pointing out that Jesus gave his life before he ever actually gave his life. And that, that sentence perhaps sounds a bit absurd, but here's what I mean by it. That long before Jesus went to the cross, he was already giving himself away. That his whole life was a life of self-giving. And that ultimately the cross is the, is the, the ultimate act of self-giving. The ultimate act of giving himself away for the glory of God and the good of others. But his whole life puts that on display. That he did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life. And he says, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This little statement from Jesus is one of the most concise, one of the most poignant, one of the most powerful, beautiful articulations of the gospel in the gospels. That Jesus is, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom. A ransom is a price paid to purchase freedom. A price paid to, to buy freedom. And, and, and in that ancient world, that, that, um, there would be a price that would be paid to liberate a slave or a prisoner. And that's the language that Jesus uses here. And elsewhere, Jesus says, anyone who sins is a slave to sin. That anybody who, who, who breaks with God's best intention from their lives finds themselves enslaved by the power of sin. And there's nothing that they can do to liberate themselves. But Jesus here says, I have come to pay the price to buy your freedom. And the price that Jesus was willing to pay was to give his life, to be nailed to the cross, to bear the, the sin and shame of all humanity, to bear the sin and shame of each and every one of us. And that we can have freedom from the tyranny of sin, that, that sin that for some even now feels like it's choking the life out of you. That we can have freedom from the tyranny of sin merely by trusting in what Christ has done on our behalf. Believing the reality that, that he paid our ransom, that, that he died to set us free, to give us the promise of forgiveness and the hope of eternal life. And, and if you're here this morning and you have never embraced that good news by faith, today can be your day to trust in what Christ has done for you to pay the price to buy your freedom. But for those of us who maybe have settled that a long time ago, we're called then to respond out of gratitude for this grace that is lavished upon us to live lives the way that Jesus lived. 
to live our lives giving ourselves away for the glory of God and the good of other people. And so this passage offers us all a challenge to examine our lives, to say how are we living, what are we living for? Are we living in the pursuit of power, privilege, prestige? Are we living in such a way as to cause others to to, to look at us and to to envy our lives, to, to try to position ourselves somehow? Are we living our lives in a posture of humble service, following the way of Jesus? Because the thing is, is that we get more of him as there is less of me, as I put myself out of the way, setting myself aside for the sake of others. So the challenge for you and me is that we might be people who follow the way of Jesus, living as his missionary disciples, giving ourselves away for the glory of God and the good of other people. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.